This week on Silicon Reel, we have Daniel Murray, founder and chief marketing officer of Grabble. When you say Tinder for fashion, don't have to explain it to anyone. We trended on Twitter and we did over 20,000 downloads in a night. Holy shit, we're number one app. The Magic team is a designer, a developer, and a hustler. We're both hustlers, is that, is that a thing? Because you're making binary options on our app the whole time, you're always giving us data. The app market is still kind of fresh. People are still relearning the rules. You've got to be nice to everyone. You've got to make time for everyone if you possibly can. When you're raising money for a startup, it's a journey, and you've got to take what you're given at each stage and hope that it improves. Silicon Reel presents Daniel Murray, Grabble try things and be positive. This is Silicon Reel, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. My guest today is Daniel Murray, who is the founder and chief marketing officer of Grabble, which provides instant shoppable fashion content that can be bought on the go in just a couple of swipes. It's also known as the Tinder for fashion. You guys are currently the number one ranking fashion app in the UK. You've just raised 1.2 million sterling from some high profile angel investors like Skimlinks chairman Alex Hoy. Good friend of mine, great guy, and Mark Boyan, uh, who backed Pinterest, and Jamal Edwards, SBTV. Daniel, welcome to Silicon Reel. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you. you know, I guess we should just come clean and tell everyone that we met at the gym, uh, because that's how I bumped into you. I saw you wearing your Sea Camp shirt. Was that it? Yeah, that is very true. And it's so, so funny. That was the one day I wore it as well. <laughs> we got in trouble for having it on. Um, it's hilarious, though, that... Um, that we happened to meet at the gym of all places. Yeah, I know of all yeah. places, and uh, it was weird. And I, it's weird because I wasn't always that guy. Even a year ago, I was a little quieter, and I just introduced myself, and and all of a sudden we started talking. And then I started, you know, playing with your app today, and it was I was I was super impressed. You know, I want to jump into it, also the whole concept of competing in the app space because I had the CEO of Hotel Tonight here yeah. a few months back, and you know they're another app only platform, and he was just telling me how it's a it's a completely different ball game than not being in that space. And I know you've learned a lot about that over the, the last year or so, right? Really interesting. You mentioned Hotel Tonight. Right. The last thing that I read before I came out here tonight was a case study um, of a specific thing that Hotel Tonight did, because actually they're pretty great innovators in the app space. Okay. And uh, being the CMO, I subscribe to every single growth hacking subscription, newsletter, whatever you can possibly get. And uh, there's a great one by a guy called Morgan Brown um, that I get. And his newsletter today was on Hotel Tonight and how they um, improved their, um, their, their uh, not ranking, but actual bookings by discovering more, people were more likely to book on Hotel Tonight's app on 4G than they were on Wi-Fi. And the reason was because on Wi-Fi, they were more likely, they had faster bandwidth, so they were more likely to try out different competitors in different areas. But it's a totally counterintuitive thing yeah. to understand. But as soon as they looked into the data on like 4G, sorry, 4G versus um, Wi-Fi, they just doubled down their budget on 4G-only connections and made a killing. Wow. So it's quite interesting to see, you know, looking at the data of, like, companies like Hotel Tonight and what they do. Yeah, and when I talked to him, I was just, I just wasn't aware of this whole app space versus the non-app space and how it's a completely different competitive landscape. You know, everyone has a buddy who wants to design an app, yeah. but then I don't think they ever know what it's like to market an app and how it can get completely lost in the storm and, you know, only the top 10 can come up. And so I'd love to talk to you about that. It's one of the reasons I wanted to have you 
you on. But one of the comments you made uh, that I picked up on when we were talking is, is this. You said that you focused your efforts on the user experience primarily on mobile and then e-commerce secondly, when a lot of your competitors or a lot of piece in the, uh, people in the space are trying to stuff commerce down a mobile platform. Yeah. And I know that's a nuanced point, but I'd love for you to expand on that because I think it's the difference between you guys being alive and you being dead. Yeah. Um, so for us, um, it's very simple to be like, oh, Tinder for fashion. Because um, on the face of it, that is a pretty simple thing. Right. And, um, you, and you really do swipe left and, and right yeah. to, to say the kind of fashion items you like, yeah. right? And your algorithm learns from that? Exactly. Okay. So, and it's a very simple way. And you know, the other great thing is like your typical way of understanding your customer in a web-based product is, do you like this? Do you like that? Would you like us to review your feedback, et cetera? Whereas, because you're making binary options on our app the whole time, you're always making a decision. Right. So you're always giving us data. And that data is quite, you know, you've got to be careful how... So, objective you are with it um, because just because you swipe left on a green shirt doesn't mean you don't like green doesn't mean you don't like shirts there's a lot of nuances that go into the data but um, the important thing is we start to understand especially things like price point um, which is key and brands that you like um, but yeah like you said the the key to us was um, you know me and my business partner Joel we are on our phones all the time, as is everyone, really. But uh, we notice we're on our phones all the time, and you know we're getting nagged by other people, mostly our parents, you know, about being on your How phone. How old all the are time. you and your founder? Uh, we're both uh, twenty-eight. Twenty-eight. Okay, interesting. Yeah. All right, which makes you, you know, a little old, you know, the, older. Yeah. So this is our third business. Okay. Um, but it's the first that we've raised external finance for. So okay. we ran a couple of other businesses previously. Um, they were both profitable. Uh, I always like to joke they were profitable, therefore they weren't interesting, therefore we canned them. Um, <laughs> but they weren't, they weren't scalable from our perspective. Okay. Uh, but both of them we ended in profit, and we actually, the second one, um, we made a considerable amount of profit in about four months and decided we didn't want to do it. It was a daily deal site. It was absolutely horrendous business, not ever, ever going into anything like that ever okay, again. I want to talk about that later. Sure, we can talk about that, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, not a fan. But the point is we made some money and we were able to, uh, it's why we were able to not pay ourselves for the first year of doing Gravel. Okay. We were also able to pay for our first uh, developer and do some market research, which is actually like how we started off with Gravel. Gravel started off completely different. Uh, we just went out speaking to consumers, finding out how they shop online. Right. I remember um, you, you said like that uh, the first nine months of Gravel, you realized you were, do, you, you were getting it wrong. Thing. Yeah. You were getting it wrong. The yeah. reason I mentioned your age is because I'm guessing your average age of your, the, the user of Gravel is younger? Or is yeah. that just me assuming? No, you're correct. Okay. Um, average is 25. Okay. Um, so it, we say it's, you know, it's an 18 to 30 audience. Um, there are outliers in there. There's, you know, if you... Like me today. Sure, right? exactly. <laughs> um, you're skewing my data. Sorry. Um, but no, but yeah, actually 25 to 30 is kind of our sweet spot at the moment um, in terms of users. Um, we have just hired a new fashion director who comes from Netaporter Group. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, the idea with that was to try and uh, sophisticate the product slightly. Um, you know, not to take it uh, like a high end because there's great, great companies and great apps in the space doing that already. But we want to find like the right niche that fulfills the market for that sort of 18 to 30 market that, you know, is, if you think about it, extremely wide. Yeah. Um, in terms of like their interests and their their points of difference, right. um, but when it when it comes to things like personalization and stuff, it's also important to understand the mid range and uh, the more sophisticated choices people might want. Right, that's very important for you. So you said that you found that you were on your mobile all the time. So yeah, we and, were yeah. Sorry, so I because uh, I, I took a bit of a tangent, but we were on our mobile all the time, and we'd created this website. 
um, and the, the concept originally was Pinterest meets ASOS, right? So you could get a grab button, you could save your favorite products from any other site back onto our site, but they'd be fashion products. And unlike Pinterest, they were rich in data. So we were able to track the price and stock availability of each product. So if it ever went down in price, a user would get a notification going, this ASOS shirt you like has gone down in price, buy it now. And we were often actually able to tell our users it had gone down in price before even ASOS were because mm. like our script would read it first. And by the time ASOS have done a sale, we email out we've already told our users so that was quite an interesting thing as well but um for us we basically noticed our i mean we had a younger audience then it was more 18 to 25 our open rates they went crazy on emails so like 80 percent yeah which is unheard of 80 percent of our audience were opening uh, our emails on mobile okay. and where industry standard up. would be 20 percent or 10 yeah. or 5 percent or yeah i mean it's growing all the time now of course right so uh, towards the end of last year, for the first time ever, where 50% of all web traffic came from uh, in retail went from mobile. So suddenly, like there's this massive trend where actually mobiles just come into like a huge, huge, huge space in terms of like actually shopping retail. Um, the reason for it is because everyone is essentially getting traffic from social media and most social media is being consumed on mobile. So if you're a top shop and you're sending out a tweet that's engaging and people want to buy it, they're going to click it there. They're going to come to top shop's site through their mobile. That's just the logical way they're going to get there. Right. Does that mean so, email's dying or is it not necessarily no, one or the other? Email has its place. Okay. Um, there's loads of debates all the time about email and email needs a redesign and email needs a rethink. And of course, right. there's the new inbox by Gmail, which is, uh, you know, an interesting sort of rethink of it all. Right. Um, the way it filters things. and Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I like it, but it's very uh, polarizing, I've noticed. Right. Um, so I think email actually still has a really good place. Um and it still converts really well for us, actually. Um, but what was interesting at the time was it was converting terribly because we had, like everyone else, a mobile web site, and it was just delivering poor, poor, poor results. So we, we really struggled, no matter what we did, no matter who, what designer we worked with, we struggled to fit in a quality uh, e-commerce experience into mobile web. Okay. Um, Even when you were designing for mobile, you still had a hard time getting it right. It makes no difference because okay. um, the, there's... Is always limited by the size of the hardware. So you look at the biggest hardware phone on the market, it'd be the iPhone 6 Plus. And, um, and even so, like it's, big, it's quite a big phone, but even so, that's like the, a limited shopping window, realistically, to be getting your filters, to be getting your basket, to be getting everything in. So it's interesting because um, as a browsing experience, I mean, look, if you're going to purchase and, you know, there's things like PayPal, etc., to make it easy, that's okay. But uh, the reality is if you want to browse... On that experience, it's incredibly frustrating. Um, we looked at all the mobile um, apps, like from Topshop to Net-A-Porto to like, you know, the ASOS, the good apps, the ones that are the most popular, and realized they were all doing the same thing, which was they were probably sitting in product teams working out how on earth they can fit e-commerce into a mobile app because they're e-commerce companies and that's what they need to do. Right. So Joel and I were like, well, actually... Let's look at this completely differently. What are the apps that are addictive on your phone? What are the apps that are like the go-to apps that you want to use that you just, you know, everyone is guilty of this. You've, you've used Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram that day, and now you're just staring at your phone, looking at it like, it's got to be an app I can kill some time on here. Right, when you have 25 other apps downloaded yeah. and you don't open them, right? And everyone, and everyone does it. Everyone's like, yeah. oh, not that one now, and it's a bit cumbersome. Right. So the ones, the go-to ones are just easy, and like Tinder was like a massive, massive win. So firstly... Like everything about Tinder is obviously genius, but everyone knows the number one winner is the UX. And when you say Tinder for fashion, don't have to explain it to anyone. I mean, even my mum knew what Tinder for fashion meant. 
Even I, yeah, I knew when you told me. There you go. Well, you're a bit younger than my mom, thank goodness. But hey. Um, do you ever feel bad about saying you're Tinder for this or that? Or do you just like, look, that's the best way to explain it? I know, mean, it's three words. Yeah. If you can, lots of people say that. If you can explain your company, like your mission, your US and everything about what you do in three words, you're onto a winner. Right. I mean, we used to try and explain the website and ASOS meets Pinterest was the easiest one. We still have to explain what that means. Yeah. Tinder for fashion is an instant, um, you know, uh, correlation in your mind. Right. So you had so, gone down the road and developed this whole interface for web and then you did a 180 and yeah. you basically walked away from a lot of that development work and, right. went, and went to the apps. So it was world. really painful. So we... I find this fascinating because you have to be a certain kind of company and a certain kind of person to do that. We had no choice. So you you're, you're right. You're totally right. But basically, this, the story for me and Joel was, so this is an unusual thing for tech company. Neither Joel or I are tech at all. So we dabbled and we created this daily deal site where we used a Ukrainian white label software solution and learned some HTML, but that's not coding. So, okay. you know, we had this struggle and we've always had this struggle until recently um, with the technology, with who we're working with, with the technology, do we trust them? Are they contract day rates? Are they outsource? We've tried everything. Mm. Um, there's no golden bullet for us. You know, it's just after a period of time, you, you find the right person and you stick with them. Um, so we'd actually um, gone through slow rounds of funding, like, you know, 25 grand here and 50 grand there and always to prove the next sort of needle. And all those needles were based on the web. So we eventually ended up raising 250K, and it was this promise to deliver this nicer looking web platform that our consumers expected. We'd done some research, you know, the UX, the UI that wasn't quite right, but the concept was good, what we had. So we raised this money to create this website. It was delayed and delayed and delayed, as things are with uh, developers. <clears throat> we lost a lot of our users, and a lot of our users' trust which was frustrating for us. Also, at the same time, you've got a team who aren't developers who are kind of, kind of limited in what they can do. Right. So, you know, waiting for instruction and waiting for something to happen. There's no website there, really. Like Kills company morale a bit. Totally, totally, totally. Okay. So um, these are all challenges that we had. Um, when we finally launched the website, we were like, thank God, like, you know, we're sorted. We've, we've done it. We've launched this fucking website. Uh, boom, let's go and market. Let's get these users. And we send these emails out. And this is in... June, or maybe June, July kind of time in uh, 2014. And these open rates on mobile had gone from 30% when we were like, re started to relaunch in March to 80%, like I said, by the time it was July. And, and that we wasn't like, an email open rate. That was an email open rate. It was. Yeah, so we send an email, on a everyone's device. opening our mobile, so they're coming straight to our mobile site. And okay. then we were like, Jesus, like, just mobile experience is cumbersome. Okay. Yeah. And then we speak to all of our clients who are, you know, a lo lot of retail clients. So retailers have always been very positive about our mission and what we try and do. Um, so they get great feedback from them all the time, whether it's positive, negative, they're always really communicative, which is fantastic. I'm very lucky if you're running a startup because yeah. you do get that inside track. Um, they all have the same problem. But it's very interesting. The mobile web app debate is uh, it all comes down to the user. So there's a few things, but how many apps is a user going to have on their phone? Well, it might have 100. But when it comes to retail, when it comes to e-commerce or fashion, they're only going to have a couple because you're not going to have 10 fashion apps on your phone. So very typically, people have Topman well, Top or Topshop, uh, ASOS, and Net-A-Porter and Mr. Porter. So, you know, you're talking three or four apps in that space are basically, they, you know, they're not unicorns. They're like the lions, if you will. Um, and they... Um, they perform well, they take a good market share, but generally none of the other retailers are, com like, are willing to create an app because they're obviously aware of the difficulty at distributing the app. 
maintaining the app on the person's phone. And obviously, you know, from a technological perspective, there's a lot of maintenance that goes on um, behind the scenes for them. So they all commit to mobile web, which not necessarily the wrong strategy, but if you're a consumer and you have an app, it's 10 times as fast. You can think about the user experience a lot cleaner. There's a whole load of uh, valuable reasons why an app is better. Right. Do you so, remember when you made the decision with Joel where you're like, we're going this way? Yeah. He'd spent about seven hours on Tinder that day. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, so, <laughs> but that was a major inspiration for you, right? Yeah, I mean, it was. Good artist copy, great artist steal. Absolutely. So he, um, in fairness, we had secretly done um, an HTML5 app previously. Uh, we didn't have a mobile team. Um, so we'd used our web developers to create basically an HTML5 app, um, which did that in prototype. And we passed it around our team and we passed it around some friends and they were just all loving it. So we were like, well, actually, if that's the case, maybe this is good validation. So let's look at this. So, um, you know, the reality for Joel and I was we'd raise this money, right? We'd raise 250K to deliver this web product and it given us until maybe December, roughly. So just recently. Right. And... Um, and we launched it and we'd spent a lot of money. Um, you know, we still had time, except then we realized that, you know, we'd made a big mistake. And actually the thing that we raised money for, the money that we'd spent was ill-advised. It was the wrong call. So we went to some investors. Well, we went to actually all of our investors. Some investors were like, no, absolutely not. Don't do that. Like commit to your vision. It's a great vision. Other investors were like, that's a great idea. I actually agree. Don't worry about the money. Like just make sure you do it. And before you run out of money or you won't be able to raise any more. So we had this really difficult period. Um, hardest period was between July and September, where there was uh, this website that we weren't really committed to internally anymore because we decided we were going to become a mobile company. And actually being able to release our MVP of the app, which happened in like the last day of September, pretty much. So pretty much October. Um, and we'd been around for a year by then. So you know we started in September uh, 2013. So classic pivot by September 2014, we're an app company. Um, so, and what did your investors say about that? Was that I mean, sell like, the younger ones? Uh, this is completely honest. The younger ones were really into it because they had all become so mobile obsessed. The older ones who really we'd gone to for a lot of guidance and had been great for us were really anti it, which was difficult because we trusted them a lot. Um, they trusted us a lot. You know, we're spending their money. At the end of the day, it's a mutual relationship. We're really lucky. We've got a really great relationship with every single investor. But I'd say it was a 50-50 divide, which was hard. Okay. Um, there wasn't, yeah, it was bang in the middle. Yeah, when I was talking to uh, the, the CEO of Hotel Tonight, he was just saying, Brian, it, it's, when you get into the app space, it's just a whole different world. You know, it's just like a whole different set of rules, you yeah, know, Newtonian versus, you know, uh, uh, quantum, you know, yeah. and everything changes. And he said, you can't run your Google ads. You can't do all this yeah. other stuff that you might be able to do to boost traffic. You're either in or you're out. Yeah. You know, I know you guys are, are enjoying kind of a number one ranking fashion app in the UK, which is fantastic. But if you're not in that top 10 is it really like being in the neutral zone somewhere yeah it's i mean which obviously we suffered from originally so right. um the first app we launched was android um it's a little better than the uh, app store because there are some seo google you know inbuilt things you can do right um you know, if you have a niche at like fashion, I mean, everyone has a niche, right? Then you obviously need to play to those keywords and make sure you throw in all the right ones. And actually, you know, for stuff that we do is uh, we actually have to constantly, I mean, look, search is 
an old game, right? So search is one of the main reasons, interestingly, that we were like, you know, just screw this website stuff because SEO has just been done and mastered for years and to try and come in now with a website that you can you think you've got a chance with SEOing, there's no chance whatsoever. Really? You can't afford it. Right. You can't afford to get up there, you can't afford to do the PPC. You can't afford any of it, whereas the app market is still kind of fresh, realistically. Mm. I mean, there might be millions of apps, but it's still kind of a fresh game and people are still relearning the rules. So ASO, which is App Store Optimization, is, uh, is more of an interesting thing that we're able to just say, right, well, we're new players to the game. But then again, you know, if you consider a million apps over sort of 100 million websites, I know yeah. I'd prefer to be uh, challenging. Yeah. So, you know, for us, it was actually doing searches on things like, well, AW15, for example, is, uh, which is autumn, winter 15, okay. is like the current season, gets a ton of searches in the app store. No one really optimizes for it. And so making sure that you have that little thing somewhere in your description means you're going to be found for like the latest looks and stuff. Because if you're a fashion consumer, that's how you speak. Right. That's your vernacular. Um, and you're speaking to businesses sometimes. You're B2B playing that way because you yeah, want yeah, to yeah. talk to those businesses. Absolutely. In retrospect, can you yeah. look back and say it was us making like one or two or three simple choices, you know, to get where you are now with that ranking of the app? Was it, I mean, obviously, I guess the design was such an important part. Um, okay, that's a good question. Without so, giving away too many secrets, but. Yeah, no, well, I mean, I wish, um, I, I think with a lot of this stuff. So, for example, someone asked me, um, this is genuinely true. So I, I actually met you in the gym the day after we had the number one ranked fashion app. Yeah, yeah. You showed me. I was like, hey. I, um, yeah, <laughs> I was showing everyone. I mean, I was like, I couldn't believe it. Do you know how we knew? We were, Joel and I were working Thursday night. And we were just like, you know, it was maybe eight, nine o'clock. And we were just talking. And we were like, well, you know, we were talking about something we wanted to do on the weekend. So he was like, well, I'll check the timeout app. And he went to look on the app store to download the timeout app and was like, holy shit, we're number one app. <laughs> we were like, what? you know, the two of us. And he was like, just open up your app store right now. And I was like, oh my God. What's and you're an app on? company and you didn't know. Didn't know. Right. Didn't know. So this is the thing, like the, that spot is um, basically reserved for the judgment of Apple, which I'm proud to say is, uh, you know. Is, <laughs> they have wonderful taste. Something fantastic <laughs> taste, thank God. So we were super chuffed. But, um, you know, there's different elements. So the things that we've achieved are that are notable on the App Store is we've had the number one most searched for app in the UK during Black Friday, which is the biggest shopping day of the year. Yeah. So that was a massive milestone for us. We also um, like did fantastic traffic. So fortunately, Skimlinks. We use Skimlinks. Unfortunately, one of our investors, as you know, is uh, the chairman of Skimlinks. And right, right. It was good news for us because actually. He hadn't invested at the time. It was, this was all we were in conversation with him. Okay. And on Black Friday, we did 1% of all of Skimlinks mobile traffic. Wow. Um, all their sales, sorry, 1% of all their sales went through the Gravel app on Black Friday. Wow. Here's this guy we're talking to who's chairman of Skimlinks. And I was like, Alex, did you know? He's like, yeah, I know. I, I want to invest. <laughs> so I was like, thank God. That was the best thing we could do. So anyway, we had um, with the number one um, search for app. So that's like in trending searches where it says Gravel at the top. Um, the way we got that, we basically did a lot of activity on Twitter. Um, so a, almost all of the, the marketing we've done, so this is speaking as a sort of CMO, yeah. um, the number one thing we learned the hard way is advertising doesn't work for us. You know, I, I, used to, I come from an advertising background. Um, advertising's great. I love advertising. But it just sometimes work. it doesn't work for what you do. Um, being... Um, a fashion app and being like, hey, we're a fashion app, you need uh, our fashion app, 
is just not a way to approach it. Mm. What you need is word of mouth. And of course, word of mouth is uh, easy to say and hard to execute. But of course, um, as any marketer will know, that's why influencers are around. You know, we did stuff with YouTubers. Um, amazing influencers, like right. amazing. Um, so they'll do a YouTube video, they'll mention Gravel just somewhere in there. And um, that gets us a lot of traffic. And then same thing with Twitter. So for us, you know, when we launched our app, um, we, well, our beta, so not, not our MVP, but when we really went to launch it, we um, basically locked myself in a room in Twitter. Um, sorry, not in Twitter. I, it's Twitter how, how it felt. Right. Um, no, I locked myself in a room and researched uh, all these different Twitter pages, all these different accounts, all these different bloggers, um, and who would be influential. Okay. And um, I got in touch with maybe five or 600 people uh, to ask them all to tweet out at a certain time about Gravel. And the only rule that I gave them was they weren't allowed to say download Gravel. They weren't allowed to hashtag Gravel. They weren't allowed to at Gravel. They weren't allowed to, I say the only rule, sounds Smart. like 10 rules. Uh, they weren't allowed at any point to endorse Gravel. The only right. thing they were allowed to do was say, um, say they do a meme, for example, of someone with a happy face or whatever, right? It was uh, that feeling I get when I find that dress I want on Gravel. Okay. Um, you know that or, a CMO at any Fortune 500 company would have told them to do every single one of those things. Yeah, but I mean, we tried them. As in, this isn't like we're a genius. We okay. tried all those things and they didn't work. So this comes down to timing again. So this was, you know, the most stressful part of our entire period at Gravel was this, this two-week period because uh, we had spent almost all our money. So we'd got the funding and we'd spent all the money on developing the web product and we realized we'd done the wrong thing. And so instantly we have to become a mobile company. We have to find a mobile designer. We have to find a head of mobile. We have to find a new product manager that's mobile focused. And we have to like out with the old and in with the new and just fucking become mobile. So that's expensive. And when you've got nothing, nothing but like a clear deadline, um, you know how long it takes to raise money as well. You've got no choice. So we had that and we had maybe 25 grand in the bank. Um, Where are your gray hairs? Yeah, well, yeah, they're coming, believe you me. You seem surprisingly calm. I get uh, they're, they're, This is <laughs> okay. up and down. It's okay. your coffee. This is the calming coffee that you the gave me. coffee. So you've got the funding deadline coming. You've got the bank balance dropping. You're really not even pivoting. You're pulling like a whole completely different business strategy. Yeah. But and you see it all happening in your mind. You're like, we can make this well, happen. Well, we tried. We just, this is the thing. So we tried to advertise. Nothing happened at scale. So okay. we tried Facebook ads, which work right. for some companies. And, you know, I, I actually believe in them, but not when you don't have much money. You time and space for them yeah. we tried twitter ads we tried uh banner ads we tried i mean everyone will get in contact with you ever if you ever run a mobile app company we can optimize your cpm for two pounds per install three pound per install that's like uk average it's like well i don't have the budget to do anything at scale my investors are going to think like what you know what the hell so i really had to think so um what yeah. we had was five grand um but what was five grand the- uh, we had five, oh, grand. five grand as then i said to joel who's like holds the first strings really i'm like you know we got five grand we've got about two months like what the hell are we going to do so i took that five grand i just like researched all these people on twitter and i just started going to them dming them basically and i have an interesting opportunity for you etc um well, what, what do you offer them if you don't have anything just 10 20 pounds a tweet 
Okay. As in literally, it's wow. desperate, but, you know, because you're giving these people rules, right? And it's their page. I know not like, you know, I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm not trying to undermine your page, but I researched their page. And so one of the things that worked really well was, um, you know, you have, so one of my favorite ones is there was this page called uh, Lord of the Rings Reactions, right? So we wanted students uh, to begin with, right? We wanted loads of students. So I found out this page, Lord of the Rings Reactions, and they had um, like a million followers. And every time they do a meme, it gets like thousands of retweets. So I was like, this is a really engaged page. We could do something funny on this. So I got in touch with the owner of that page and um, I made them a meme. So I made a meme where, where these pages did memes that get retweeted so much, um, I created a meme specially for them. And this meme was a picture of Frodo holding up the ring and the tweet was that feeling when you finally find that bloody ring on Grebel. Um, and it was like, it, when, when we did the campaign, that got retweeted like 12,000 times or something. Wow, you this know, is guerrilla marketing at its and, best. And, and it was all we had. Like, so I was like, Joel, we can not spend the five grand and we can spend it slowly over the next two months and die a death. Or we can literally, Sunday night, perfect time, before X Factor and after the football. And we chose a night where specifically, because I mean, Twitter is basically on a Sunday is 100% football or X Factor. So we chose a day where football games weren't massive. It was right. like the Super Sunday was like a mid-league one. Um, made sure that it was far enough before X Factor. And so I'd gone in negotiating with all these different pages, 10, 20 pounds, created all these memes, like wrote the memes for most of them, not the fashion bloggers. So fashion bloggers, you've got to be careful and not tell them what to do. But yeah. I just gave them the rules. It was like, please don't endorse us, don't hashtag us, don't make it look like advertising. Anyway, um, it all went out at um, 7.15 on a Sunday night. Um, Joel and I sitting in uh, the Hoxton Hotel, actually, right next to here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in the it's, lobby, just waiting. No, well, so we'd been there all day, and um, and we'd actually had our first investment meeting with Alex Hoy that day, and it was one of those things, typical uh, scenario where you're like, you should invest now. He's like, well, I might just wait till see how tonight goes. You know, fuck, um, oh, Alex, how dare yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. Have you? Got, can you wait twelve hours? Could you wait to miss this opportunity? Anyway, so um, we sat in that lobby. And I mean, we didn't even notice, you know, the Hoxton Hotel was like, it was buzzing around us. And it was yeah. us two hogging up two tables with our laptops, like just drinking water, just like staring and staring. Um, and suddenly it all just kicks off. We, um, we just start getting mentioned over and over again. We got all of our friends involved. We got everyone okay. that we possibly could. All our retailers were like, you know, this is our last shot. There's no shame. I'm going to ask everyone. I got everyone I possibly knew to tweet about Grabble, okay. but just not endorsing it and not adding us right and can um, you track the the, the mobile the, the app store downloads no, uh, no there's nothing not trackable about it so as okay. a marketer there's pros and cons um the pros are it's phenomenally phenomenally successful campaign the cons are you just can't track it properly and that's right, the issue there's a big because lag you can't tell people downloading yeah, it yeah do you what, tell people are using it you don't uh yeah yeah absolutely okay. i mean yeah people were using it we had I mean, buying with it or swiping because yeah no, and buying, swipe, and buying. And i mean okay. we did crazy amounts that night so okay. um in that night alone we and bear in mind it took us a year to get to six and a half thousand users right and slow it was web and it was killing us right. that night and the concert uh, the, the like next two three days i mean we did about twenty five thousand users um and our, is there any better feeling as a chief marketing officer than that yes because i'll tell you what i'll tell you what is better than that <laughs> is when um you don't 
have your servers crash, which is the typical, the typical uh, ups and downs. Yeah. So, I mean, I've learned now every time something good happens, like when we were featured at number one app store the other day, I was like, Joel, I mean, how, how many days until something terrible happens? Like, something bad's about to happen. But anyway, that, that night our servers went down and, you know, they we, managed, okay. we managed to get it up. But, you know, we were doing 300 downloads a second at the peak when we trended on Twitter, so we managed to trend at the number three spot nationally in the UK uh, with just the word gravel, because uh-huh. the way Twitter works is there's hashtags, which are campaigns, and then there's yeah. just words of interest. Right. And when you get in that spot and, you, and your feed starts to all become about gravel, um, then you start to take note. Um, fascinatingly, you know, we basically went up zero Twitter followers, but everyone actually had the initiative to go on the app store and download the app, which was fantastic. Hmm. So, so you didn't have a big follow presence on Twitter, nope. but you were trending and people went straight to the app yeah, store. People use their initiative, which wow. is amazing. So this um, is like a case study. Like, I don't know how many people are listening, but there's like people, I mean, marketing officers should be listening to this. Yeah, it was, it was, right? it, I mean, it was, it, but it was a last ditch attempt. Like, we, but we, it was one of those, like I say, it's one of those things where we had tried the traditional routes. They didn't work. We had no time at all before we ran out of money. So, you know, we, and we've got a team and there's a lot of guilt and a lot of everything involved because these are people's careers. And actually by spending the five grand, we're just cutting it short even further because, you know, if it goes down the pan, you've made a terrible decision, you're closing the doors. So it didn't. And the next morning, basically, we were able to go to Alex and he was like, right, okay. And yeah, raise okay. the terms on him. Yeah, well, no, but at the time, obviously, during the meeting, he was like, you guys are overvalued, you know, there's no way. And then that next day, he was like, okay, he's starting to become about value. And then now he's like, right, you're, by the end of the funding round, you know, he was like, you're undervalued, you know, you could do whatever, but we don't really want to. We just want to close the money and right. get on with it. But um, so the App Store thing, actually, in all seriousness, is, is what happened. So, um, that happened. We trended on Twitter and we did over 20,000 downloads in a night. Wow. That's how you get into the top 10 in lifestyle. So just to give you like rough estimates on what you need to get into top 10 in lifestyle, which is our category, um, has to be over 10,000, uh, but typically around 20,000 plus is what we'll do. Um, so we were very happy to wake up that next morning and see that we were at the number seven spot. Um, our highest position has been number six, which was last week. We've got to number six. Um, to give you an idea of the top five, um, Amazon, eBay, Tinder, Apple, um, and um, I can't, maybe Argos. There's another, okay. another one. But, you know, the big, the massive, massive e-commerce, or Apple themselves, um, are the top apps. So when you're at number six, you're talking about the number one by a mile of all the other fashion ones. So during London Fashion Week, for example, we were number six. Topshop was the second highest. It was 25. So it gives you an idea of like the difference right. in, in space there. And so, as, a, as a marketing officer, what do you do after that big push? Well, I'll tell you exactly what I did. Yeah, okay. <laughs> exactly what I did. So firstly... If you're in a startup right now, you should take some notes <laughs> is all I'm saying. This is precious knowledge. I emailed everyone I knew to uh, get hold of the App Store Manager. Like, like uh, or some contact to the app store. Like someone must have an email to the app store manager or someone in the app store. And uh, someone gave me like a low level contact. Um, I emailed them and I was like, look, I'm really sorry to do this, but I, uh, I don't want to bother you because you know, you're the app store. You're like God. And I'm just this lowly ant. But I'm freaking out because our app is so high in the lifestyle chart right now. We're a startup. We're basically fucking desperate. Uh, how do I get featured? How does that happen? Um, 
And they actually got back to me and they were like, you know, you need to um, apply here, you need to do this spreadsheet, you need to do all this stuff, um, five-week roadmap, etc. And I was like, oh, just, we're going to miss this opportunity so badly. Because being a number six in lifestyle or number seven in lifestyle is great, but actually, as you've seen, like when I showed you on the homepage, if you're on the homepage featured, that's different. Okay. So um, we uh, really funnily, um, I basically just said to him, look, I did a little presentation a one-pager where I just highlighted the tweets that we'd got from our users. So in about a night, we received around 5,000 tweets from users, um, basically with tweets like, Grapple was the best thing on the App Store, or why has no one else thought about this, or all this kind of stuff. And I just collated some of the best ones I could see, put them on a one-pager for them, I was like, I completely respect the roadmap, I respect all the rules, I promise you. However, please... You're a I, lobbyist now. Yeah, and point. I was just like, look, I mean... We're not going to get this opportunity again. Don't even. I didn't mention the funding stuff, but I'm like, you know, you don't. A company like us doesn't know when you get this opportunity again. And all I have to say is, please just go on Twitter and type in the word Grabble. Um, we like. We know we don't have a perfect product, and you know, all apps have bugs and everything else. However, the most important thing if you have a consumer app is your consumers like it and they identify with it. And whether you're the app store curating a list or you're anyone else, all that matters is your user base. Um, so I got the guy to just, I mean, I didn't, didn't force him because I couldn't do anything. I was like, just type in the word Grabble on Twitter. I gave him a URL link and I gave him a little one pager like if he wanted it. And I was like, that's just what I have to say about it. And thank you very much for your time. Um, the two days later, we were featured in, um, in the best new app spot. So it was amazing. This time around, when we were featured in best new app, I didn't, get in touch with him at all because okay. uh, I think it's one of those things where I don't know him I don't know them um, they're the app store right I right, think you like need to be said, careful with these relationships you it's don't like phone call, make it a phone call to YouTube it just doesn't happen yeah you don't, want, but you don't want to be annoying and you want to maybe pick your moments wisely and with the London Fashion Week stuff for example we planned a campaign and I had quite good faith in it um, and I didn't want to bother them. So actually, when we got there organically, it's an even better sign that you know you've moved on a little bit. Right. But yes, yeah, so this first time, I just and I contacted him, and I got hold of all our investors, and just you know made a song and dance out of it. We might use it to get new retailers on board that had previously said no. We did three hundred thousand clicks to buy in a week from that day, like right. which was humongous on a mobile app. Right. Um, so this is a crucial, crucial piece. You, you crucial, mentioned something yeah. earlier about advertising for startup or maybe even mobile-based startups on the traditional places like Facebook and Twitter and things yeah. like that. And yeah. we've played around with a little bit here. We don't really have a product, but you know, I might as well light that money on fire yeah. a lot of times because it just doesn't go anywhere. And I'm not saying that a Fortune 500 company with a targeted ad spend to all the different metrics they have on Facebook, I'm sure it does something. It sells cars and stuff. But yeah. for people in your shoes, yeah. you know, with 10 grand left or 25 grand left, I mean... <sighs> Is it usually a waste as opposed to really going deep and finding some people that are going to... I think you know, so. Yeah. So um, this, this isn't new knowledge, right? Do most people know that or are most people not aware? I think it's aware? subjective. Yeah, I, I, think think, right. I, mean, I think what I would say as a caveat to anyone listening in, and basically probably shouting down the like Facebook, screen telling Facebook, me to fuck off. Twitter, but, uh, Google. But I <laughs> personally... And it is just my personal opinion. We haven't had the budget to optimize those things properly. Like what I will say completely wholeheartedly is I know some great marketers in really good companies and they kill it on Facebook because they have time to sit there all day optimizing and making sure they do it. And you know what? Like I'm Facebook, we have a love hate relationship at Grabble for it because, um, you know, 
it's very hard to criticize it as a consumer because all the changes they make, which is every fucking month pretty much, they kill every bit of great work you've done as a company, every single thing you've tried to learn about how to optimize the ads, how to get the CPM down, writing fresh content, all this stuff. You've tried really hard. They go and change the rules again. You get really pissed off. Yet, as a consumer, your feed is more and more and more relevant to you right. and more and more and more enjoyable. And the reason is because they're changing the way okay. that the content reaches the consumer. So we do have you know, the love-hate where we're like, well, okay, but on the other side, Facebook's a content platform. They want to be bigger than video space. We're not creating video, for example. I mean, you're lucky that you are, but you know, we don't, that's not our specialty. So I think if you are good at creating video, I think you can kill it on Facebook at the moment. If you have flatter content, like ours is fashion products and collections you can shop, it's impossible. It doesn't work for us. Right. Um, um, doing hyper-personalized content all the time is very time-consuming. Um, think if you have someone who can spend all day with a good test budget, say 10 grand, optimizing on Facebook, you can work out how to do it well on a low cost. But we didn't have that at Grabble. Right. Um, and most companies don't have that. Most luxury, companies don't so. have that. So it's about finding something else that works for you. Like Honestly, what works, but you know, we're lucky in the sense that we're a consumer fashion app. Um, you know, we, what works really well for us is building relationships with bloggers, building relationships with influencers yeah. in general. Um, we take them out for lunch. We meet them. I have uh, a colleague, Katie, who's, you know, the most sociable person you've ever met. And she is genuine right. and authentic. And we're lucky that we have her because she goes and meets them. And then it's not a matter of what am I paying for X, Y, and Z. It's a matter of they like her and they want to talk about the product right. and they like the product. And those are real allies for you to have. You know, and, and please, if you if you disagree with some of my comments, please leave us some comments below. If you found a lot of success with Twitter-based Twitter, Twitter based advertisements. Well, Twitter or, was quite expensive. You know, or well. TrueView on, on YouTube. But, but you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't. And, and, and it's interesting that you say that experience. But obviously someone's using it <laughs> yeah. out there. Um, yeah. Let me ask you a bit about happiness because you said that you've run businesses before, like you had that that Groupon like site, and I know you had a point where you had you were selling playing cards. Oh yeah, and so you and you oh, were doing previously, that was previously a different business, right? And you were doing really well, but yes. you just say, but you said that you absolutely hated it. Yes. And so it's it's funny because a lot of people think a successful business is one that makes money, but when you've been uh, loving and enjoying a business, like it sounds like you are right now at Grabble, that's a completely different feeling than just making money with a business. Right. Well, Joel and I are pretty similar in that we like the unknown and we like challenges. And um, the biggest challenge, so we did both previous businesses together. Um, we've got very different personalities and skill sets as well. So he's more like finance based. He's the responsible, respectable one, the reputable one, I like to say. <laughs> you seem pretty respectable. Sure. Well, you know, I'm the one that has the crazy ideas. I was like, let's double down on that and it might not work. And then like company goes under. So I'm, I'm the guy that's like red or black. Um, <laughs> right. but I hope it, hope it lands on red. Um, so the, um, the reality for us is we did this playing card platform. So we were the first company in the UK that did, um, that utilized QR codes okay. uh, when they first came out. And we did um, different brands advertising with QR codes on playing cards. And um, we ended up, so basically the consumer would scan that and they'd get the fresh advert, whatever it was, and the advertiser could change in the back end on their side, whatever they wanted the advert to be. So it was quite a cool product, a bit early, to be honest, because even QR codes, um, you know, apps had just come out. And so one of, one of the few apps a lot of people did have was a QR app, but not everyone. It's quite a techie thing still. So we did it. Um, the only challenging thing for us was we didn't think the whole thing entirely through. So um, can't really describe to you what a million packs of playing cards look like when they turn up at your house. But um, 
That was not the best thought out strategy. There were a few lorries, a few, few crates. Fortunately, my um, family business, so my youth when I was growing up, was uh, in fashion manufacturing. So I spent a few summers in a warehouse driving forklift trucks. Uh, so I actually had... Not, the, all, not all glamour there, is it? Yeah, exactly. So I was actually able to do something with these cards. But, um, but you made you the know, decision that you never wanted to be involved in a, in a, in a physical They just turned up and we looked at that and we were like, Jesus Christ. Like, it sounded so good on paper and it sounded so good on our bank account and everything else. But now, like, this is a nightmare to distribute. And we were like, you know, why would we ever choose to do that? That's just stupid. But you don't know until you try it. Um, it was quite easy to sell. Um, had really good advertisers on board that wanted to advertise, like Bacardi and uh, and Just Eat and Olympus. We had you know pretty good, strong premium brands uh, paying good money. But you know by the end of it, we were just exhausted. We only did it for three months. We did one distribution um, to universities across the UK and and did it all as lean as possible, so did as much of it ourselves as we could. But by the end of it, we were like, well. That was not fun. And I definitely don't want to do it again. So, you know, if you do two or three print runs a year, we were like, absolutely not, not for any money. Um, By the time we'd actually done everything, it wasn't even particularly profitable. So we were like, right, forget that. We're never doing that again. Don't want to do physical product. We are interested in web. And we didn't know how to code, but um, it was summer of 2012. Google had just made a $5 billion offer for Groupon, which Groupon very cleverly turned down. Um, and um, yeah, I think about three months after that, it just took a nosedive and no one was interested in daily deal sites anymore. However, we got into it because we'd actually got a lot of leverage out of our um, cards. So from our cards, you know, doing so much in the student space, we got a lot of leverage out of student sites and student uh, media, and they quite enjoyed them. And, you know, we'd give them loads of them for free and blah, 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 blah. Um, So we were like, look, we've got these good relationships. We could probably get some free marketing. If we just do a daily deal site, you know, what's how hard can that be? And the answer was not very hard, by the way. Um, We did so lean. We spent a thousand pounds on the entire company, incorporating, designing, naming, branding, marketing, everything, all the tech. Okay. But you ended up, you didn't like it in the end is what you're saying. We absolutely hated it. Okay. Uh, so what we learned was, and it was really profitable. So our first month we made 40,000 sales. Okay. Um, and what we realized was unhappy consumer, unhappy retailer. That's the nature of drop shipping and group buying in general. Right. And no one's happy and everyone blames you. But it's actually not your fault because all you're doing is connecting the two dots. But two you can't explain people. that. Right. Yeah. So we were like, well, I mean, are we just literally going to spend our life like knee deep in email, apologizing to people and trying to right these wrongs? Yeah. Because you felt the consumer. Because it's a lot of negative energy. You know? So much negative energy and it wasn't worth it. Right. So we just um, really quickly, again, you can see the history of snap decisions but really quickly we're like let's just stop it and profit we're not interested in this anymore so we um emailed all of our users ceased to exist um took the money and whereas a lot of people might be like right let's go traveling let's have a bit of space we were so into the entrepreneurial journey and really enjoying like what we were doing we're like let's investigate trends much more Joel's area. Again, I'm the snappy one. So I was like, oh, uh, group buying, that's really popular right now. Let's do it right now. Not realizing, of course, that if you join a trend right at the end of its popularity, it's probably going to fall off a cliff. Joel's much more research driven. So he was uh, the one who was like, well, let's just see, like social commerce. That looks like it's becoming a real thing. So, right. so you put your money into the next venture at that point. You know, you said you don't code and Joe doesn't call, doesn't code. And a lot of times I ask people at the end, and I'm going to ask you a few questions here, you know, what they, what they would do if they could give advice to their younger self. And a lot of them say, especially in this tech space, 
learn how to code. Yep. Do you wish that's something that you had learned how to do? Or yeah. in a weird way, by not knowing how, do you have to make more intelligent decisions as far as who you hire and what you do? Uh, you do, and you also have to make um, the hardest... I mean, the biggest problem is no one takes you seriously. So to start off with... Everybody wants um, to rip you off. <laughs> well, they say everyone says, uh, like serious investors, you need to have uh, the, the magic team as a designer, a developer, and a hustler. And then, you know, we'd be like, well... <laughs> We're both hustlers. Is that, is that a thing? And they're like, no, fuck off. That's just not like we're not interested. So that was the hardest part was trying to find the right um, developer um, or person that would actually believe in us to give us the right money with some credibility. So what actually happened um, is when Joel was at PwC, he ran something called the Entrepreneur Forum and he started it there. And he basically interviewed young tech CEOs under 30 in London. And he met this guy called Rob Durkin. Rob Durkin happened to run a company which did data scraping, which was exactly the technology that we needed to do our idea for Gravel. So we went to him and basically asked him for money when we had the Daily Deal site. So we were like, we're doing this, look what we can do with $1,000, imagine what we could do with or pounds, imagine what we could do with 25,000 pounds, which is what you should invest. Um, he pretty much told us to fuck off like many times, in fairness, like he was right. Um, but he was like, just here's the name of one of my developers, go to an MVP, see what happens. You've got some money, just go to your own MVP, put your own money where your mouth is. So we actually did it and came back unannounced to his office one day and he just never thought he'd see us again. And he was like, I can't actually believe you've come back. I was pretty rude to you guys and we're like yeah but we want to do this we're serious and we need someone who has some expertise and understanding so we just kept going back to him until he became our first investor and from then it got it got a bit easier but um in terms of learning to code i mean so many times um firstly we were like like no one takes this seriously in london the startup chile looks good let's just move to chile and like there's uh you know what about our new life in santiago let's just do that and um then there was you know these really expensive coding courses we were like you know shall we do them and actually now we we take coding courses you do Um, okay yeah yeah we um we found uh found a great guy that does them and um okay so learn to code that that is good advice for anybody in this space i think it's good advice anyway but in the same way as like you know it's good to learn the basics of marketing and it's good to learn the basics of like you know finance if you can but um it did make us hungrier in fairness and we wanted to build a sophisticated technology product so what was interesting is we would never have been able to learn the quality of code that we needed to get it off the ground anyway. So yeah. it did make us hustle a lot harder to find the right people. Um, yeah, you really have to do your due diligence if, you don't, if you're not that familiar with the product. But in so a weird way, you don't taint it with your own you know, lack of knowledge. Like yeah. you said, if it's going to be something super sophisticated, just because you know how to do some basic coding. But also the biggest, problem is, the biggest problem is management. So you get these developers in, and how do you get the management? How do you know what they're doing is right? How do you know they've built it the right way? You just have no vision or clarity on these things. So in the early stages, these were the things that would keep us up at night so badly. I got really bad insomnia for three months. Uh, We had a developer called Ben. Um, He was a phenomenal human being, amazing coder. However... He, I mean, I started a Tumblr blog once of the best excuses I've ever heard in my life for not staying up to work. One of them was uh, I fell asleep tying up my shoelaces this morning. So he presumably just fell asleep in that position all day. Another one was he fell asleep in the bath. He did that about three times. Another one was my dad's a prick, as if that is an excuse to not come to work for a whole day. So, you know, you basically have to deal with the fact that you're dealing with um, these, these people that you don't really know. You're reliant on them. Um, and you know that whole environment is really stressful and I think the best thing I could ever give as advice to people is 
uh, if you can start a business with someone that at least understands how to lead the technology side, you're going to be able to sleep a little better. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, insomnia yeah. is real. Yeah, yeah, we really yeah. like scrapped around to get to this point, like hardcore. And you know, they say fake it till you make it. The first six to nine months was faking it until you know we were able to get a quality CTO in, a quality product manager in. But those things take took us longer than they should. Right. No, I understood. You know, you've said that being in London has meant everything to your current trajectory. Yeah. You know, we are in the Silicon Roundabout here. You know, my other show is called London Real. Some of the tech people give us a hard time because we're so London focused. But you know, what the hell? We're here. So yeah. get over it. Tell me why London is so important for you. You know, people always talk about London being such a capital when it comes to fashion. Yeah. But I'm guessing it's not that simple. Why, is, why has it been such an important part? Well, you know, if you think about the three things we need as a company, you need fashion credibility, um, That's and therefore, big. That's and therefore big. retailers. Right. You know, you need the clients. Right. You need technology, and you know the actual supply of quality technology. Now, we've got a lot, a lot of issues on supply demand curve on technology in London, but there's more developers here and quality technology knowledge and infrastructure here than anywhere else in the country and as they arguably say Europe um, and uh, and finance and London is one of the finance capitals right. of the world so you're talking about an amazing environment and then you know I hear loads and loads of um, positive and negative feedback on SEIS which is like the tax schemes yeah uh, Alethea had a few thoughts on that and, I bet uh, they're probably negative uh, maybe yeah. and uh, I think even Stephen Rappaport as well of Pack Coffee yeah. had some yeah, yeah. thoughts on that as well yeah, yeah so yeah. Um, I and Joel and I have different opinions um, my perspective is we never ever would have I wouldn't be sitting here in this chair. We never would have got it off the ground if it wasn't for SEIS. Okay. Um, two guys who aren't coders are not going to get the money, the capital, to start a technology vision. Um, full stop. Unless there's a scheme in place that makes it you know, tax efficient for the investor. It's a huge risk, the first 150K. And we barely built a product on 150K. Um, you know, it's just crazy to think, actually. You know, I, I came from a background where... Um, all the businesses we'd made were your, your typical business of, well, I've earned money. I'm going to put it into myself. There's going to be this cost and that profit out of it, which is a pretty normal business. And here we were Cash suddenly work. being like, well, we need loads of money to build a product that, you know, apparently is going to make money in five years. And that's kind of like a tech startup. And I was like, I felt very uncomfortable about it. But you go and meet investors and, you know, whether or not they're the right kind of investors for you at that time is, is a problem. And it does kill companies. And I know lots of examples where that's been a massive problem. Um, so we got lucky, I think. But I would say that our first investors, our first 150K, were almost all not good quality investors, as in they, and by their own admission, you know, they, they're there to invest because it's tax efficient. They got us off the ground. Uh, we couldn't be more appreciative to them and we have a really strong relationship with them. Okay. But they don't add value to the business and they don't try to because it's not that's not why they invested. Our next 250K, um, which is EIS approved, starts to become a bit more sophisticated because actually, um, you know, it's not as tax efficient. So they actually need a good reason to want to invest. And we've got better investors out of it. Um, this latest round, because we're mobile focused and we're doing interesting things in the mobile space, you know, we've got dream investors. Right. So all I would say is, you know, it's not good to have a sort of a dogmatic point of view on it because actually when you're raising money for a startup, it's a journey 
and you've got to take what you're given at each stage and hope that it improves the same way as you do a Series A is often institutional and you get phenomenal investors, you hope, right. at that point. Okay, great. I really appreciate you putting it that way because yeah. it's nice contrast to, to what other people you know, have said about that space. You just raised 1.2 sterling. You talked about um, expanding in the U.S. and Asia. Yeah. But how can you do that on that amount of money? It, it, you, you're gonna have to, that's going to be in the future, right? Yeah, yeah. so uh, it's a good question. Um, it's pretty valid. So what's really interesting about our product is so you talk about moving to a new domain and it being this huge hassle and for us you know we take a very pragmatic view it's an app um at the very core of it it's just an app and there's clever technology behind it that understands users and recommendations but the way our app is uh functions essentially is you take um, affiliate feeds, you take products that our fashion director chooses based, based on style trends, etc. Um, they're different in America than they are in the UK, but these things, you know, often are led out of New York or London anyway. Yeah. Um, um, you've just got to localize your app to the app store and then you've got to do marketing. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have any people on the ground in America if you're going to be in America, but as a starting point, it's actually, it's not like um, you know, Pat Coffee, for example, if they wanted to go and start up in America, you know, they'd have to ship the beans and have some infrastructure. And actually, it's amazing what technology, scalable technology like an app can be. Um, it's quite amazing to think about actually the low cost of just being in America or being available in America. Marketing is a completely different tactic and you need money for that, absolutely. Yeah. But what we intend to do with the money is prove that there's some appetite for what we're doing in New York, um, which is you know actually where we're, we're going in, uh, in May to meet the UKTI about the steps we do and what we need to do. But absolutely, our money uh, for this round is 100% product focused. So we know, so we just hit 100,000 users Congratulations. We, thank you. We're having a party, but uh, after ice, which I'll be on with you. Right. Um, this is funny. We were like, we'll take the whole team out, but Joel and I are away this weekend, so next week we'll have a party. Um, but for us, we know that we can acquire users and we know that users like it. But um, the thing that we genuinely believe, this comes back to um, what kind of mobile app are we? Um, so we talked about e-commerce apps. Um, trying to fit e-commerce into an app and then trying to say that's the experience. What happens with those users is you find a user that thinks, I want to go shopping, I'm going to open up the ASOS app. I want to go shopping, I'm going to open up the Topshop app. That, that's not what our users do with us. So our app gets opened at short bursts. So sorry, on those e-commerce apps, you'll spend five to 10 minutes dwelling, searching, etc. Our app, our users come on five or six times a day, 30 to 60 seconds. They open it, they snack, they swipe, they put it down. They open it, they snack, they swipe, they put it down. Their interactions are completely different to the way a typical consumer shops in general. Hmm. So what they're doing throughout the month, very typically, um, they're making these decisions all the time, really quick decisions. They're filling the time, what they like, what they don't like, putting it away. When it comes to payday or a time when they actually want to buy, what they do is they bypass all of that. They go straight to either their sale alerts if they've got a bunch or they go to their basket and they start checking out all the things that they want to buy there and then. They've already made all the decisions. They don't need to spend ages searching for the things they want. They already made those decisions last week or a few days before. Yeah. So for us... Um, these, these heads of e-commerce sales of these companies are salivating now. Yeah, well, it's, it's, <laughs> Someone would open their app six times a day and yeah. start swiping. But, it just, right? it, but what it shows is, is a different 
different experience. So we have different metrics. Um, we're not all about sales, which is terrible if we're in an e-commerce app in a way. But for us, what we think is fascinating is being an addictive app, being something that's fun and easy to use and just l- low barrier to entry is the most important thing. So it comes back to doing research on what a user looks at when they're staring at their phone. You know, we see our... We see, well, a lot of our team are, you know, female, obviously, because it's a shopping app, and you know, we see them do it all the time, like just staring at their phone, being like, "What, what are you, what are you looking for?" And they're like, "Well, I'm looking for what app I want to just play around on." Right, you entertainment. Know, that, uh, you totally. know, staying so in you touch with new fashions. That. So, so people say, yeah. So people say to us, you know, you've got a monumental challenge. You've got a cha- you're challenging ASOS. You're challenging Topshop, and we're like, we're not challenging them. Don't worry about it. We're challenging Instagram. We're challenging t- Tinder. We're challenging Snapchat. We're challenging any. Because the app game is so different. So if you think about it, um, Google search is a thing of the past, right? So realistically, who the hell goes on Google search um, for an experience? You don't search for a taxi. You don't search for um, events. You don't search for whatever. You go on Eventbrite if you want an event. You go on Uber if you want a taxi. You want to go, um, you know, like send, uh, look at pictures. You go on Instagram. There's just the go-to app. So right. your mobile screen is your home screen. That's your search bar. If you can get your app on someone's like first or second page of their phone, then you're sorted. So for us, it's like we want Grabble to be that where you start that fashion experience and want it to be low barrier to entry and we want it to be fun. But we need to be addictive. We need users coming back regularly all the time to look at the content and consume it like as if they were on Snapchat, like as if right. they were on Instagram. Have you read the book Hooked? Talks yes. all about the yes. user experience, yes. the variable reward. Bought it for a product and, manager, actually. Okay, yeah, I've been yeah. listening to it. It's fascinating mm. and, and a bit disturbing when you start li- really understanding how you get hooked on something. That yeah. variable reward Speaking concept. Of which, I just started reading, um, uh, oh, we just had it, uh, crack, uh, maybe opening Twitter, cracking Twitter. Um, oh, is, it about the, is it about Twitter? Yeah, 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 oh, okay. it, it is. Good. Uh, well, I'm on page five, but okay. Joel tells me it's fantastic. Okay. It's yeah, finished. that whole hook thing, you know, the, the yeah. concept of variable reward, I was like, well, that's not important, but it is important because sometimes you come on, like, uh, emails are great or Twitter. Sometimes you get nothing. Sometimes yeah. you get elated. Sometimes you get pissed off. And so, and this is what, you know, creates interesting habits. Sometimes they come on to Europe and they see something cool. Sometimes they see something they don't like. Sometimes, yeah. yeah, you know, and that's what you want. Well, what we found was fascinating on our research was because, um, you know, your typical fashion or e commerce head of marketing would always say like what are you doing that's terrible but um showing people products they don't like is a satisfying part of the journey for them right, right, so right, right. our users love saying no to things they don't like that's and it's not it's not annoying that they've swiped no 10 times right. it was actually rewarding satisfying. for them in a way and we're like we're very protective sometimes we're like shit that's terrible that person had 10 negative swipes and then we do direct research to them about how it made them feel etc etc and fine Interesting. Yeah. This is cutting edge stuff, especially well, with the different. UX you have and how fast you get that data and you present the data yeah. and it's so visual. And like you said, you're getting feedback, you know, without people knowing that they're giving you feedback. Well, what's, what's amazing is we're able to give our retailers that we work with. Um, so one of the, one of the features that we didn't kill about the web product because we have retailers and publishers that love using our web product. And what they're able to do is grab their products off their website, stick them in a collection and share it on social media. What happens then is the user clicks that collection. So say it's uh, 90s boots or whatever, right? So that user will click 90s boots collection if it's in style now, and they'll go to the app store to download Grabble. They'll open up the app and it'll open straight into the experience from the retailer that shared it, which is really interesting. So it's giving them like a native app presence as well. Um, And what's interesting is every time they do that, we're able to then go back to, let's say, if it's Topshop doing it, we're able to go back to Topshop and go, you know, that 90s like trend you did on your boots. Um, you had 20 products in there and here's the data on it. Like this is how many people grab. This is how many people disc 
discarded. Now you have some information on whether it was popular or not, or what was popular and yeah. what wasn't. Yeah. Beyond just sales. Yeah, that's a super value-added feature for them. Yeah. You know, you, you, I want to get your thoughts just kind of in the end here about the London ecosystem when it comes to startups. Yeah. I know you've, you know, this is your third, I guess, you know, a per, you know, pretty developed one. Um, you've talked about, you know, someday you want to be able to give back and maybe invest in some businesses, but you said you want to do it in the right way with the right energy. Yes. You know, it's so frothy right now in this market, and and I am to blame because I'm promoting all these tech rock stars like you every week, and it's something that came up with Alethea, and so a lot of times, you know, the the tech is the new rock star can bring the wrong people, bring the wrong energy, bring the wrong capital. Yeah. And I was just wondering, what do you see happening now in this ecosystem? Is changing so fast, and you know, we got billion dollar valuations here and there, which was definitely not happening a year or two ago. No. Like, what do you mean by that? Within the right energy. Um, I've been to, so the way Joel and I raised our money, um, which is, you know, I have to say something I recommend to anyone because it's hard. So Joel and I, so no, we didn't not only not know tech, we also didn't know a single investor. Like, so we kept on trying to go back, like I said, to the fuse pump guy, Rob, but you know, he told us to fuck off like 10 times maybe like on individual things. So in the meantime, we're going to every single pitching event we can. So we went to, um, there's all the ones that were where like members clubs where people have money. So home house, arts club, Shoreditch house, you know, they all run like funding events. Okay. Um, and we don't know what we're doing. We went to dream stake, which is a good one. Um, and they're based at Google campus. Okay. Uh, I would say they're more, they're the best of all of them from my perspective. And there's a few that are good as well, like Angel Lab, Angel's Den, where you pay a fee or you pay a fee plus a commission if you raise the money, etc. Now, what's interesting about I've them, never heard of these, which is really? weird. Maybe because I haven't been raising money. Oh, you yeah, haven't been raising money. If you yeah. did, like, if you need, like, early capital, like, you'll do a search and you'll find these. Like, okay, it's fine. for Angel Capital. This is all Angel Capital. All okay. Angel Capital. Okay. Okay. It's hard to find Angel Capital, but at the same time, not. Because you go to one of these events and then you suddenly realize, shit, I'm pitching up on stage. Um, a good, another good one, by the way, is Angel Investment Network. Okay. They And I'll tell you why they're particularly good, just as a quick caveat, because they said no to us for 12 months. They were like, it's just not good enough. So... To give them complete credit where it's due, they have um, an email database of about 2,000 sophisticated angel investors, and um, they have one event every couple of months, and you stand up on stage, and you speak to a room of 70 or 80 angels, but then they also send your presentation, your feedback, and everything out to their entire database. And why I think they're good is they always recognize we just didn't necessarily have the right product, so they just kept on saying no very politely and always offered good feedback. When we had our mobile product, you know, we were raising money straight after that we trended on Twitter and got all these users, and they were immediately like, yes, bang on, that's the right product. Like you can come in and, you know, they introduced us to um, one of our um, board members now who's the head of e-commerce at CNA Liberties Harrods. So great, relevant investor. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we went to all these angel investment events. Um, there's 100 people in the room. 90% of them are just old men with um, white hair and money. Too much money and no, no longer having any fun. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, basically. And, you know, it's fine because... That's what we needed in the early, early stage. Like, Joel and I didn't care. Like, we just didn't care. We'd have raised money any which way we possibly could to have a chance at pursuing the dream that we wanted to execute. Um, there was no... I mean, there's a question that sickened us, like, regularly, as you'd meet people, you'd talk about, are oh, we just raising some angel money? And they'd be like, well, who are your investors? And we were like, well, no one you'd know. And they're like, oh, okay. And it's like, well... That's a privilege to some people to be able to have the right connections, the right people and everything else, have the right angels. But actually, you know, on the face of it, if you're trying to get business off the ground and you're trying to do an idea, you'll take what money you're given 
and you'll be really thankful for it and you'll never forget how thankful you were for it and you'll always have a good relationship with those investors because they backed you. But what you do see is a lot of people and this happened to us a lot and it actually makes me frustrated. I was even thinking about it this morning for some very strange reason um, but that will approach you as investors um, they'll give you all the reasons why they're amazing investors and then they will spend time with you telling you um, what you should do differently in your products and blah, 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 blah. And eventually there's actually no money. They don't really want to invest, but they do want to advise you and do you want to give them like a percent of equity as like an advisor or whatever. And when you are mm. desperate and you need it, you're never really sure who a snake is or who is real. Um, and, you know, it's like any business relationship. It's like due diligence, but it's hard because, you know, it's so easy for someone to create a fake LinkedIn account with all these. I mean, who's going to verify it? Who's going to say that it's not true? So this actually happened to us a fair amount. You know, we'd go to certain events and some people would just turn up and try and really sell you their expertise and their amazing investment credibility. When it came down to it, no money. And when it came down to it, they wanted something from you. Wow. Okay. Um, so it's something you've got to look out for and, and it's all based around and this is the negative part the SEIS EIS thing because it becomes an opportunity where you get unsophisticated investors being the norm of the fabric right if that makes sense whereas if it was just quality investors everywhere that wouldn't really be a problem okay that's fascinating interesting I guess and also it's it's due to the, the frothiness of the market that maybe these people are kind of existing and showing up these events yeah. to grab equity percentages yeah. from people so yeah um, that's a good observation and it's an interesting thing and, and if you're listening to watch out for and to maybe I, I mean I guess you've got to do your due deal at the end of the day right but yeah. there's only so much time in the day so everything gets stretched right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and due deal is like is, like I say due deal is you, you stop that at LinkedIn a lot of times Right. Um, someone's LinkedIn can make them sound absolutely incredible. Right. When you have no time, do dill. Yeah. You can go out the drain really quick. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, I always ask people a few questions. I'm going to ask you them. One of them was what I alluded to earlier, um, but I'll ask you. I know you have a little bit of a family business background, you know, in fashion and things like that. But if you could make a phone call to the 20 year old Daniel and give him a bit of advice, what would you tell him to do, knowing what you know now? Okay, that is a great question. Um, well, for starters. Um, We've already covered learn to code, but learn to code is the really obvious one. Um, I think, realistically, trust my gut more. So um, the really hard lesson that I learned, and this comes back to exactly the same developer I mentioned earlier, was I felt it wasn't right immediately, and I started to see signs of it not being right. Really crippled our business. So you know, we almost died because I didn't get rid of this developer because he was very good, but he wasn't reliable when he wasn't in. So I think it's a sign of like, you know, I was still green at that point. You know, I was uh, trying to learn how to be a boss and manage people where I didn't really understand what they were doing or necessarily anything else. And I had my own timelines, you know, when you, you're raising X money, it runs out at Y point. So regardless, if that guy's a good developer and can get stuff done fast, then get him in. But um, I was too soft because as soon as he came up with one excuse, like I fell asleep in the bath all day and couldn't call you to say, well, I can come into work and other people you're working with are all relying on him being there because he's the lead dev. You've got a big problem. So I think learning to trust my gut and making, um, the harder decisions faster, which like, you know, is what we have learned on this journey. Yeah. Um, we learned to do the pivot at the right time and actually probably like a week or two later it would have been completely incorrect. Um, and um, I mean, I think like for Joel and I, we, we've always been really pragmatic anyway. So we're very determined. 
So regardless, I mean, we were told no a million and one times. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I, you know, the 20-year-old Daniel didn't want to run a tech company. Um, I wanted to do advertising. And that's what I did. And I loved it. It was great. And it was actually Joel nagging me to leave advertising to say, let's try and do something entrepreneurial and different. Um, so I think like my major learnings is actually if your gut says no, um, it's almost always right. Um, no matter what your heart and head say. Um, and I just really felt it. And, uh, and, and so I've really learned to go from the gut now, actually, and it's been working, which right. is useful. Um, learning to code is just such an obvious one, but um, I think, uh, you know, realistically, and they say this a lot, but it's also about who you meet. So um, the thing that was a turning point for Joel and I, I'd say, is every single meetup and every single thing. And I, I always advise people to do this, like in the early stage, like no matter what kind of business they're running, if they're like an independent PR person or anything else, and they're like, oh, I've got this thing, it's going to be crap. It's like, do you know how many crap events I went to? Like, you know, if there were five or six a day, I went to five or six a day, every single day, and one a week would be good. But you just don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know how you're going to meet them. You'd never be too arrogant to not go to a certain thing or turn up to something because you just don't know. You've got to be totally and utterly pragmatic. And if you're actually dedicated to try and making it work, um, then you've got to make connections one way or another. Like people are uh, firstly really helpful and really nice in, in this game anyway, which is the massive benefit. Yeah, super. Amazing. Uh, so the complete opposite to advertising and media where like people are very cutthroat and very like insular and they're into their own deals and their own campaigns and it's all competitive in, and it's like that in fashion as well. In tech, people just want to help each other. No matter how successful you are or how many years or, or how few years, if you've got a bit of advice to share, you generally share it. And, um, and that's why I'm like always really honest, like how we did our marketing or whatever else. Like I'd love for anyone else to be able to do that. I wouldn't want anyone to be in this stressful situation we were in. Oxen Hotel, nice place to be in, but you know, wasn't an enjoyable day. Um, so I think, you know, making sure that I was out and about meeting people earlier because yeah, that's a crucial point because yeah. we've all been to the lousy events and like I'm not the most sociable person even though I invite strangers over here and talk to them twice a week but you know sometimes you go to these things and you're like what am I going to do and it's going to be shit because it was yeah. last time but but magic happens when you're in in person with people and sometimes you'll have an experience that will be 1000 times better than anything that would happen what online yeah. or something like that and you'll meet that person that will have this 100x effect on you and well, your that's business that's the thing and like no matter how <laughs> sociable you are you're the you're always going to go to an event so like you'll try and go with Joel but you know actually what we'd often do is there's too many events you go to one I'll go to the other and like oh god I hate just going up to a stranger like hi Daniel I, I want to run a startup I have this idea I don't have any money. I don't know anyone in tech. Yeah, it's so cringy just saying it, but like that's the reality. That's who I was. And you've done it hundreds of times. I did it, I had to do it hundreds of times. I hated every single moment. I felt like A, a creep, B, a weirdo, C, like I didn't fit in, like imposter syndrome, majorly. Right. Um, but one by one, person by person, event by event, you build up an amazing group. People are like, oh, I should introduce you to my friend who will do this. And oh, this person might be able to help you with that. Um, you know, if you don't just get out the building, well, it's like the Steve Blank thing on customer development, get out the fucking building. But, you know, it's the same thing just in your own personal life. You've got to get out of the house, yeah. away from your computer screen, meet people in real life. 
Again, that's why London's so amazing for that. There's just so many events all the time. You only have to go on Eventbrite and type in, you know, startup event and just see yeah. how many things are going on. Yeah. If you're ever hesitant to go to an event, just think of all the people around the world that would be, they would kill to be in central London. Yeah. And that you are and you can't be bothered and you want yeah, to go absolutely. home and watch Game of Thrones or whatever you watch. But yeah. no, I agree. Uh, one good tip go for that. Go to a Game of Thrones meetup. Yeah, go, exactly. Well said. <laughs> well, one good tip for that is there's a great book called How to Work a Room. And I've been reading it lately. And it's just a great way to go to these cold meetups and just a few tips to which you can go in and just feel more comfortable and just like mm. chat with people. And it's probably better that you and Joel used to go separately because yeah. if you go with a friend, sometimes yeah. you just sit and chat with. Well, that's bar. what we learned as well, right? And it's Didn't just work. a big waste of time. And the other takeaway was go with your gut, man. I've been really using that a lot lately with me. I'm an engineer background, and so I'm like all about the numbers in the spreadsheet. And sometimes it makes sense on paper, but it doesn't make sense in your gut. Yep. And it's just like, and sometimes I just give myself a few days, and like I get all the info, and then I just sit on it for a few days, and I, and then I just make the decision. Yeah, it's obvious, like a few days later if you can just kind of let it you know process yeah my so, head, head and heart is uh it's too confusing right yeah and it's super confusing you know um the, the second part of that question was best advice you've ever received i'm guessing part of that is kind of you know getting out or advice you've given to yourself is get out to those meetups and go and meet those people because you know that's kind of where the magic happens the last question is you know to the 20 year old that's listening you know that wants to be like you you know that wants to you know be the guy on the app store be the guy in the hawks and Ohio hotel be the guy that's raising money from alex hoy yeah. and then moving to the u.s and all that you know i know there's a lot of media hype around this area, but what do you tell them of things that they can do, you know, to get there, to start their own company, to, you know, to get into a tech space? Well, first it was interesting. I would say as a 20 year old me didn't want to do this. I'm still not doing what the 20 year old me wants to do. I wanted to be a screenwriter. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. So course, the, yeah. I actually want to be a screenwriter and I still, uh, one day, you know, it's funny, like the 20 year old me is looking at me like a tech fan, like, fuck, <laughs> how far do you want to meander from that? But then my idea is, you know, hopefully do well out of it, sell, and then I can start like focusing on writing scripts because I wasn't making any money off that and it became impossible. I like so, that. I bet that's part of your success is the fact that it's not the only thing you're focused well, on. I, I, I have just, I want to, I want to like, yeah, I, I just want to do the other thing. So that's what will make me feel fulfilled. Exiting a tech company would actually not fulfill me like having one screenplay or sitcom published by the BBC or Channel 4 or something like that. That's much more important to me. Okay. What's your favorite um, screenplay, by the way? Or just uh, a, a few at the top of your head. Okay. So uh, I absolutely love Adaptation by okay. um, Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, it's yeah, a Nicolas yeah. Cage film. Spike Jones is a director. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's absolutely crazy. Um, and it's about a screenwriter. Well, it's about it's Charlie Kaufman writing a screenplay about Charlie Kaufman writing a screenplay. Right, right, right. So it's a bit mad. It's the ultimate in screenplay. Yeah, and dreams. I love his stuff. Eternal Sunshine is another one. Okay. With the Spotless okay. Mind and uh, being John Malkovich. I really like his films. They're okay. very. So you weird. like you like the weird stuff. I like the weird ones. Okay. They're just very different. Um, okay. So sorry, you were saying that this, yes. this isn't your dream in a weird way. No, it's not. Um, okay. But I, which I find fascinating because you're obviously very good at it. Well, it's, but it's not that. It's actually just um, humans, are, humans are people, like basically blank canvases, and you learn skills and you acquire skills along the way for them, right? So the reality is most people can do most things. It's just the path you choose to take. So, you know, you, for example, could have been a doctor easily. You were in banking. You definitely could have been a doctor. Oh, right? You would have had the same <laughs> skills. Uh, sorry, same, same, same intelligence, same ability. You just chose not to, and you chose to do that. My doctor friends could be bankers. They could run startups. So it's just what interests you for that time and what you can do. And I think actually, you know what, Alex Hoy, we keep talking about him, is a really interesting uh, point here. He's run four tech companies, one IPO, chairman of Skimlink, What's he doing? 
is running a ski company. Yeah. Because he fucking loves skiing. Because he loves it. Yeah. He doesn't know shit about uh, how to run a ski company before he started Faction, but that's what he's doing and he's killing it with them and that's his passion. So, you know, I respect that. We actually like connect a lot that, that actually, you know, he's finally doing that. He's in his 40s. I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Sorry, Alex. Um, <laughs> but hey, um, you know, and, and hopefully by the time I'm in my 40s, I'll be writing screenplays and I'll be fulfilled. But um, I think the thing to say to advice to 20-year-olds and stuff is... Um, this comes back to actually what we were talking pre-interview about Americans versus English people. Yeah, I'm glad we got into this. Tell okay. me, what's Don't the difference? Don't be a dick, ever. So this is, uh, and I love, I love English people and I love American people, as I was explaining to you. But the big problem with English people in general is they're quite reserved. This is the worst in London as well. So I'm a massive London fan. I think it's the best city in the world and I'm fortunate enough to have been to a lot of cities. I've been traveling for a year. But London is my favorite city. The only thing that's bad about London is if you go to Manchester, not as good a city. The people there are great, though. They're great. They're just energetic, happy, same sarcasm, but sarcasm said in a nice way, whereas us Londoners, I'm also guilty, uh, you know, can sound so sarcastic in a bad way. Um, that's our, um, you know, that's our niche, it's our thing, it's what makes us likable too in our way, but I think it's very easy to be a Londoner and have a negative perspective or a reserved perspective or an unenthusiastic perspective. It's very easy to see the enthusiastic American in the room um, talking about love and goodness and how we should all be one great big community and, oh, isn't it so lovely? And if you've got 100 people in the room, one American and 99 English people, the 99 English people are going to be like, oh, God, what a load of shit. But actually, the American guy is the one who we should be respecting for that attitude because that is highly positive. And the tech thing really is um, more an American culture, right? So American culture, in my opinion, um, especially based around technology, is a lot about helping each other. It's a lot about positivity. Um, told you the downside of that, of course, is you can be so positive, you're not really sure if it's always honest. Right. Whereas at least British people will tell you straight away if they think something's shit. Right. Um, but I just think the the most important thing, and this is the most important thing to Joel and I that's always been important, is you've got to be nice to everyone. You've got to make time for everyone if you possibly can. Um, you know, it's the typical, you don't know who you meet on the way up and then on the way down kind of thing. So we've been so lucky with the people we've met, you know, who are really senior people. They've really given us their time um, to help us. And we're still at the start of our journey, right? So we're like, you know, a dot at the moment. And hopefully we get to even a place where Hotel Tonight are, you know, they're an aspirational app company from our yeah. perspective. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I think uh, attitude is the most important thing. Never think you know everything. And we literally act like we know nothing. And actually, you know what? In the app game, no one knows anything. This is the fascinating thing. Um, you're learning on the job, right? Like who knew that the Twitter thing would work? Who knew that, um, you know, how you get to a trending search on the app store on Black Friday? We don't know this stuff. Like you can't learn it. You just, it's all new. And all these consumer actions are new. So you just have to try things and be positive. Right, and stay um, humble and yeah. treat people well. Well, yeah, I mean, the people that I've met who are humble, who are just so successful and so amazing, um, are true to that. And all the best investors and entrepreneurs I actually know are you know, crazy wealthy and successful and just super chilled and decent. Right. And I aspire to that 100%. Um, so do you meet a lot of egos along the way? Um, and a lot of people that talk up their game, you know, like Joel and I, we get all this, um, you know, press and you, in, you interview me for Silicon Real and we're like, you know, how amazing. But 
<laughs> behind it all is just like that, you know, th th this is nothing. Like we are nothing, which is true, like completely true. Um, we have so many like hard months and years ahead of us to get to a point where we're something. Um, we're not even in the same breath as Hotel Tonight. And, um, and they're not even in the same breath as, you know, other unicorn, you know, they're not Snapchat, for example. You know, the mobile space is fascinating and there's only a handful of unicorns. Um, those guys are absolutely aspirational. Um, you know, their point of difference quite often is they do a singular function really well. And that's why Hotel Tonight's doing well. It's why we're currently doing well, because we just understand a simple function and we try and keep it as simple as possible. We killed all of our features, like I said to you yeah, before. Yeah, we, um, we did a short video earlier and he was saying about killing features. Yeah, we killed that's, everything. That's amazing. So everything. just slowly take your features yeah, out. And, and that's the one thing we learned about mobile is like you look on your look on your phone at the apps you like to engage with. They do one thing and one thing only. Um, it's counterintuitive to how the web was built. The web was built that you have websites that do everything. Right. Uh, the more a website can do, the more useful it's going to be. So Facebook is the only real um, exception to the rule. And look what they did. They acquired WhatsApp. They separated Messenger, Messenger out. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, even they understand that actually you need simple functions on an app. So, you know, Facebook is 99 presented on just the newsfeed. Um, you know, that's what they really try and get you to do is just engage in content in the newsfeed. If you want to speak to people, separate app. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we, we have a lot to learn and a lot of places to go. Daniel, you're a fascinating guy. I'm putting you uh, top on the 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 uh, ones ones to watch list. I'm just made a silicon reel top ten in London ones to watch, and you're on the top of the list. You know, and so thank you. <laughs> I just thought I'd make that up. You know, it's really fascinating to hear from you and like the the energy you have and kind of the humbleness, but yet the intensity. And uh, I don't know. I just think it's a winning mix here, and I, and I think your investors feel it, and obviously your customers feel it. And um, you know, that's a that's a big thing. For we just feel lucky. Yeah, well, because that, and we're that's, not, that's a big thing, though, because we're feeling not, lucky. we're not tech, right. and, um, and we got challenged on it all the time, and, right. you know, we just feel, like, so uh, humbled was the perfect, that we are humbled to have the opportunity to be at this point already, because we almost didn't. Right. But feeling um, lucky brings a lot of things with it. It means you're grateful. It means you're uh, constantly trying to do better. In the yeah. grand scheme of things, your, your, your accomplishments are small. You're, you're giving uh, respect to the people that are doing better than you and trying. I mean, there's a lot of things going on there. So I think they, they're all going to make you a success. So, so congratulations to Alex for getting in on such an <laughs> early round. You know, he's, uh, he's making all of the other investors, you know, it just he's, he's, he's really showing them up, I think. And if you're listening to us, get in on the Series A sooner than later. Contact Daniel Murray. And, uh, and get involved. What's the best way for them to, uh, to give Gravel a try? I guess it's just right now, go to the App Store and download Gravel. Go to the App Store, and if you're looking for some light entertainment, follow us at Gravel on Twitter, where we uh, share content collections to swipe through, but also a lot of our own personal brand of fashion humor, I would say, okay. which is important to us as a brand. You know, we like to be a bit tongue-in-cheek, yeah. not take it too seriously. So Good. App Store and follow us on Twitter. Yeah, and I downloaded Gravel today, and I loved it, and I was playing with it. And I'm, I'm not like your typical guy, but some guys are like, I'm not into fashion. I don't know how to shop. My girlfriend shops for me. And so, like, if you're that guy or you think you might be that guy, it's so easy. I did Facebook login, and I already started swiping. And I was showing someone I was swiping. So it becomes interactive, social, entertaining. And I guess I'm building my profile now. And yep. Maybe I'll look better in a few weeks. Well, let's see how you look next week. <laughs> see what, see what I'm, hopefully I'll change this look. So um, awesome. And uh, you're on uh, Twitter as well, Daniel Murray. They can find you. You got a weird Twitter yeah, handle. Yeah, it's uh, Murray Muzz. Weird Twitter handle. How right. do they? Yeah, no. Murray being my surname and Muzz, which M-U-Z-Z, -Z, which was my nickname in school. So yeah, I got it before I realized Twitter would be that big. And now I'm stuck with it. So <laughs> yeah, I'll keep it. 
Well, wish us luck on, on the uh, the weekend with ICE this week uh, this weekend. Uh, if you don't know much about ICE, it's just a really cool group of uh, entrepreneurs here in London and in the rest of the world too. And they really go out of their way to, to learn a lot and to really help each other. And again, it's just a testament to the, the tech scene here in, in London. And it is just a really positive place where everyone just helps each other out. Yeah, there's 95 of us going. It's yeah, that's quite, crazy. Quite a big number. Yeah, crazy. So hopefully we'll make it back alive. Daniel, as we say on Silicon Real, it's about the people and it really is. This community is. You're a big part of it. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I've really enjoyed this. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Brian. I right. enjoyed it. Okay, cool. Thank God for that session in the gym. Yeah, right? And yeah, <laughs> I know. Thank God for all that stuff. Best of luck with Gravel and um, I'll, I'll see you soon. Thank you. All right, cool. This week on Silicon Reel, we have Stephen Rappaport, founder of Pax Coffee. I want to stop you from running out of coffee that you love. Stopping you from running out of coffee is different from sending you a bunch every month. Customers hate subscriptions. You need to be passionately, emotionally bought into the problem you're solving in order to execute better than everyone else. And if you don't execute better than anyone else, why launch the business in the first place? The global coffee market is the second largest commodity market on the planet after crude oil. We're a highly commercial business and we're a very customer-centric business. On Monday, Silicon Reel presents Stephen Rappaport, Packed Coffee. Follow your heart, do the thing you're most passionate about.